Well, a very good evening to you and a warm welcome to uh, St John's uh, this evening. And um, we are delighted to welcome uh, Sir Jeremy Cook, who is um, with us to be uh, interviewed this evening. And uh, he is a, uh, he's married to Barbara. He's got three adult children, eight grandchildren. Um, Jeremy qualified first as a solicitor and then became a barrister. And in 2001 was appointed as a High Court judge. He worked for 15 years um, in doing a mixture of work as uh, both um, a judge on the, in the commercial courts, but also uh, in serious crime, including at the Old Bailey. Um, he now works as an uh, international judge in the uh, commercial courts of Dubai and Singapore. And he also works as an international arbitrator. So welcome to you, Jeremy. Good evening. And uh, wh why don't you um, tell us to begin with, how has lockdown been affecting you, as I'm sure it's been affecting everybody in different ways? Well, I haven't been able to go into courtrooms uh, or into arbitration rooms, but we've done much the same uh, on Zoom and Microsoft Teams and any number of different platforms. It's remarkable how much you can actually achieve in terms of hearings and listening to people arguing and even, uh, even having witnesses. So you can get quite a lot done that way. So the, the short answer is I've been locked up back home, but carried on pretty much uh, as one can given the circumstances. And do you feel um, zoomed out like uh, the, the rest of us do? <laughs> a bit, but uh, Probably I haven't spent as much time on it as uh, many people who are in business have to. Okay, so, okay. And so, um, I mean, tell us a bit about what it was like to be um, a, a judge, particularly when you were working with serious crime. I know judges sometimes aren't the most popular of uh, figures in society for one reason or another. Did you get any backlash in your, in your work? Well, you'll get a bit of backlash from the press. And uh, of course, you can't respond. Uh, so you take quite a lot of stick, and I've had my share of that. Uh, but you also um, <laughs> are not necessarily very popular with the people you have to send to prison. So uh, on two occasions, uh, I've been burnt in effigy. Uh, once in Karachi, and once in Lewis in Sussex. Each time by uh, people who were aggrieved at sentences I'd passed on various defendants. Uh, but, you know, as long as it's only an effigy... Does it matter too much? And plenty of much better people than I am being burnt for real, let alone in effigy. Well, quite, yes. So goodness me. Um, I'm going to be asking uh, Jeremy a number of questions and um, uh, see, see whether he can answer them. And, but I, we, I'd love to, answer, to ask those who are, who are there watching on YouTube, if you've got a question that as we go along, if something comes to you, um, that you would like to ask, do put it in the live chat, um, which you'll find there on YouTube. If you're, on the, if you're in a browser, you should find it directly next to the window where you're watching this. And uh, I will keep an eye on that and uh, take questions from there as, um, as appropriate. But I've got plenty of questions to be going on with. So, um, Jeremy, you're a Christian. Tell us how you came to faith yourself. Well, it's nothing very dramatic. Uh, I was very fortunate in having a, a Christian home in which I was brought up. But uh, 
come the sort of teenage years when one was full of teenage angst and trying to work out what life was about and so on, it uh, came home to me, I guess, over a period of a couple of years that uh, if Christianity was true, then nothing else really mattered. That was what counted for most and that I had to live by it. And that there were two things I think that came together. The first was being convinced that it was true. And uh, in particular, looking at questions like the resurrection, it seemed to me that uh, the evidence, and I, I wasn't a lawyer at the time, but anybody can look at the evidence. It seemed to me that was very compelling. And so I was satisfied as to its truth. But there was a second element, and it was this, it was seeing people who were a little bit older than I was, who were living it out as Christians. And the reality and genuineness of their faith, the fact that they had met Jesus, a risen, resurrected Jesus, and lived by it. And I saw that really was what mattered. Uh, it was not only attractive, it was compelling. And I realized, well, that's the way I've got to live. So I came to a point where not only was I convinced in, in my head, but I felt I had to commit to it and live by it. Thank you. So you then you went on to, 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 to practice in the, in the legal profession. Um, I mean, many people might say, surely Jesus had a word to, tell us, to say about judging. You know, he's, he, did he not say, judge not lest you be judged? You know, what is a Christian doing um, working as a judge? Well, he also said, woe to you lawyers as well. He wasn't very keen on <laughs> the lawyers of his day. Uh, but no, I think you, one's misunderstanding that phrase if you think he's talking about a justice system. That when he comes to be tried by Pilate, he points out quite specifically that Pilate wouldn't be in his position unless God allowed it. Uh, and the biblical record is full of justice. Uh, God is a God of justice. It's part of his character. And he wants justice to be done. And he wants uh, an impartial system of justice that achieves that. And when he talks about judging, he's judge not. He's talking about the personal condemnation that people must not embark on when dealing with others. And that's true for a judge too. Uh, I'm there to do a job in terms of meeting out justice, but I recognize that we're all capable of wrongdoing. We all do wrong. And uh, I get judged for my judging in exactly the same way as I'm judging the person in front of me. Mm. Uh, and um, it, it, may, it may interest people to know that about two weeks before I was appointed as a judge, I was, I was reading in my private devotions, uh, a passage which I never recall having read before, though I probably had because of the various Bible reading plans one does. But it was a, a passage in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 19. And it's um, a bit where the king sends out judges into the provinces to dispense justice. I'll just, I'll read you a verse because it's, it's, it was so critical and so fundamental for me. Uh, particularly as it happened just two weeks before I was appointed as a judge. And, and I had no idea I was about to be appointed. But, but it says this, uh, he appointed judges and he told them, consider carefully what you do, because you're not judging for man, but for the Lord who's with you whenever you give a verdict. Let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Uh, and I mean, that, that, that hits me. Uh, judge with care, judge justly, 
judge impartially, no corruption, judge justly, judge in the fear of the Lord. Well, that was a commission, wasn't it? As near, as near as makes no difference. And the two reasons that are given for doing that are, are that you're not judging for men, but for the Lord, and he's with you when you give a decision. And, and the being with you is both a comfort and a challenge. It's a comfort because I need all the help I can get to get it right, but it's also a challenge because I know that God will judge me for my judging. Mm. It's on my shoulder to help, mm. but I'm accountable to him in exactly the same way as all the people in front of me are. Doesn't, so it's a very compelling thing for a judge to see. Isn't Christianity about mercy? Isn't Christianity about love and, you know, forgive as the Lord forgave you? You know, how do you fit that into your, you know, you're, you're sending a, a criminal down for, you know, a considerable period of time in prison. Um, where does mercy come into that? Well, not a lot in the context of a, a, a human system of justice. It's not the judge's job to forgive the individual who has killed somebody else. Uh, if I wrong you, only you can forgive me. Uh, and in, in cosmic terms, when we wrong God, only God can forgive. So in a human system of justice, there's not a lot of room for mercy. But, but justice is much, much wider than people think it is. People tend to think of justice as being punishment only. But actually, if you look at what justice means in the biblical record, it means putting things right. That's what we're trying to do. The whole business of equivalence, compensation, paying the price, however you want to put it, we use lots of different words. But the idea is to try and uh, put things right that have gone wrong. And uh, the Hebrew ideas, the Old Testament ideas of righteousness and justice go together. Righteousness is getting things absolutely as they should be, exactly as you'd want them to be. Life absolutely ideal and absolutely right. And justice is about putting it back on track when it's gone wrong. Mm. That's what one's trying to do. And of course, we do it imperfectly because we're humans. Mm. And there are some things we can't put right. We can't put death right, for example. Mm. But fortunately, God can. Mm. Mm. Thank you. So you know, in your work as a judge, you must, you will have seen uh, evil and its consequences up close and personal appearing in front of you in a, in a courtroom. How did that impact you? I think, I think one's quite realistic about humankind. If you're a judge and certainly if you're a Christian, you see a, a lot of human evil, but you also recognize that the people who do it are just people like you and me. We're all capable of exactly this. We're all tempted to do wrong. We're all responsible for what we do. And many of those who are in a criminal context have had much less privilege than probably most of us have and face temptations that are much stronger uh, and perhaps different from those that, that we face. Uh, but humans are responsible for what they do. Uh, and I think one approaches this with a degree of realism. There's a question here about um, what you're doing when you sentence someone. You're doing it for the protection of society. You're doing it to deter, to stop others uh, going that way. You're, you're doing it to punish the person concerned. You're doing it also in the hope perhaps that it will benefit him and rehabilitate him. There's a whole mixture of things that go into the sentencing. 
and probably one of those ideas tends to predominate in each sentence that you you pass. And is evil just something that's done by other people? I mean, is it you know where does it is it out there in the world? Is it is it um, uh, you know yeah? How would you answer that? Well, of course great chunks of evil, I don't know how, how you measure it, but perhaps the majority of evil that one sees is the direct result of things that humans do, either an individual or group of individuals. But of course, the, there's a lot out there in terms of natural disasters or indeed epidemics, uh, which on its face is plainly evil, but is not the direct result of any individual's wrongdoing, or at least we think not. Some might contend otherwise in relation to Wuhan, who knows? But uh, the reality is that we are, live in a world that's full of all sorts of things that are not good. And the biblical explanation for that is, well, this is actually the result of a world that's turned its back on God. Uh, and so we're in a creation where there are problems, where there are natural disasters, where there are illnesses, where there's death, and so on and so forth. And so... The problem of evil is one that uh, is a root problem uh, that one has to grapple with. You know, why have we got it in this world? And yet, why do we have aspirations towards good and so on? And what is Christianity's um, answer to, to that? Is it just that we, you know, we all need to try a little bit harder to be, to be better? And, you know, will, will, will the justice system be enough to, to deal with the problem? Well, the justice system plainly isn't enough to deal with the problem. <laughs> We've had uh, um, probably a good, goodish justice system here now for 100, 150 years, something like that. Um, it's not perfect. We make mistakes, but it's probably one of the best in the world. Uh, but crime goes on and evil goes on. And I can't change an individual when I sentence him. At the end of the day, uh, what changes people uh, is when, when God gets to grips with them in their lives, he alone can change them. Uh, and there are limits, therefore, to what, what I can do, what any justice system can do. Um, only God can really change people from the inside out, which is what ultimately counts. Hmm. And is, is Christianity then just for criminals and evildoers? <laughs> no, it's for judges too. <laughs> What, I mean, One of the points I was trying to make, I think, is that we're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. And, and when I was a judge, there's a, there's a problem for a judge. It's called judgeitis. And it's when a judge gets to the point that he thinks he knows all the answers and he thinks that um, uh, he's important uh, and so on and so forth. And it's a great um, antidote to that, to have children who bring you back down to earth quite quickly. But the reality is that, that we all have these temptations to do wrong, and we all do wrong, uh, and we're all in the same boat where God's concerned, the respectable judge on the one hand and the drug addict criminal at the far end of the scale uh, on the other, or much worse than drug addicts, I might say. Okay, thank you. So we're going to come on to what Christianity has to say um, about how um, it, you know how, how evil is dealt with and how God has dealt with evil in the world we're going to talk a bit about evidence now I, I just want to repeat you know anybody who's watching if you want to chip in with a with a question um, please do do that and I will keep an eye on that um, but let me let me ask you what 
if um, what, what is it about the evidence that has persuaded you? You know, you, you have seen a lot of evidence come up before you in court as a judge. You get presented, presented with huge bundles of, um, you know, ring binders of paperwork that you have to sift through and see where the evidence is pointing you. Does the evidence for Christianity really stack up? In my view, yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't be a Christian. Uh, if it's not true, then there's no point in it at all. We're all wasting our time. But uh, as with um, any question, and this is true with the big questions of life, one's looking for the most cogent explanation that fits all the facts. And, and, and what we have, at least to my way of thinking, is a very clear um, uniformity in the universe. We can study science, we can study physics, we can study the principles because things work uniformly. There's, it's not just random. And I've never been able to see quite how people can think uh, that the universe is entirely random. There's an order to it, there's a design that enables us to, to, to see how it works and to study it. Uh, and as soon as you come to the view that there is a design and you only have to look at the intricacy of the way the human body is made up, you know, look at an eye, for example, and then look at the universe as a whole, uh, there's a design, there's an intelligence behind it. So if one starts from that, and then the, the next thing that I find compelling is, is history. You've got to look then to see uh, Jesus. Uh, and the evidence about Jesus that I find so convincing. Uh, how do you explain this man? A man with the highest moral teaching that has ever been seen, as is universally recognized. Uh, a man who uh, is reported to have done the most extraordinary things, who said he would die and rise again. Uh, and on the evidence, as I see it, did so. And if that was the case, then here's a man whose very life and death and resurrection are of cosmic significance, because what he said he was doing was doing all this to bring man into knowledge of God. So this is the fundamental. This is what one has to grapple with. Mm -hmm. I can't persuade anybody in five minutes in an interview. No, sure. sure. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't attempt to try. But all <laughs> I can do is to say that it's worth looking at the evidence. Yes. In particular, looking at the records of Jesus' life. Now, when, um, uh, when uh, judges are um, leading, you know, instructing juries and things in, in court, uh, what is the standard that you're required to, to have in, a, you know, in, a, in the, the highest possible standard of proof? Well, there, there are two standards of proof. In civil matters, the commercial matters I deal with, I have to decide on the balance of probabilities, what is more probable than not. So in percentage terms, that's 51% against 49%. It never is in percentage terms, but that's what it comes to. But if you're looking at the criminal standard, when you have to convict someone of a crime, juries are told they have to be satisfied so that they are sure. And in the old fashioned language, that was expressed as beyond reasonable doubt. So that's the standard. And if you look, for example, at the gospel writers, uh, Luke begins his gospel and his uh, second book by saying that he wants people to be certain about what it is that he's writing about. Uh, and he talks about Jesus being alive and showing convincing proof. Uh, and so you're looking at that sort of element of that sort of standard, uh, which I think is satisfying. And 
So um, you you are you know you're, you're you're satisfied that the evidence is there beyond reasonable doubt. I mean, here's somebody who isn't. So Richard Dawkins um, has written about how the you know he's convinced that the Gospels are fabricated. He said no serious scholar today thinks that the Gospels that you've just been mentioning, the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. No, no serious scholar today thinks the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Everything in the Gospels suffered from decades of word of mouth retelling, Chinese whispery distortion and exaggeration before those four texts were finally written down. So what, what, what do you make of that? He's a very clever man, but he's a very poor historian. Um, there are plenty of books around, there are plenty of scholars around who have done real research into this, who would say that Dawkins is just fundamentally wrong. Um, I can recommend any number of books on the subject, but perhaps the, the shortest and easiest, hold it up, here we are, mm -hmm. Can We Trust the Gospels? Short book, goes through the basic arguments, but points out that uh, Jesus is a figure who was well recognized in history. He's recognized by Roman historians. He's recognized by Jewish historians as having existed and died. Uh, and no serious historian, I would say, could ever doubt the existence of Jesus. The only question is, how do you account for him? And, and what you've got, you've got a record. You've got records of him uh, that are far above and beyond the extent of records for any other figure in history of that era. And the book I've just mentioned and shown you compares him, for example, with Tiberius Caesar, the emperor at the time, and points out how much more we've got uh, and how much better information and how it can be traced back to the earliest manuscripts of which we still have uh, fragments uh, in existence today. It, it, it's a powerful, powerful uh, story to look at if you're an historian. Mm. We want to go to the sources, which is what history is all about, looking at the sources to see the evidence. It's a very powerful evidence indeed for Jesus. And the question that I always come back to when I deal with people is, well, how do you explain it? How do you explain what happened and how do you explain the growth of the Christian church from this man with his teaching and his claims about life and death and himself? I guess a lot of people would be happy to say, you know, well, I, I, I accept that there was a man called Jesus Christ that he lived, you know, I'm not with those who think that he's completely made up. There's enough historical evidence that he existed. And, and most historians, it seems, despite what Dawkins might say, accept that. But I guess many would say, but, you know, I, I think that the bits around the edges, you know, the, or, you know, as they might put it, the, the, the idea that he is actually God, you know, that's ridiculous. Or the idea that he, um, that he rose from the dead, that's ridiculous. I can accept that he's a prophet. I can accept that he's a good teacher, um, they might say. But so are many other people through history. What's, what makes Jesus so special? Well, you have to look at not the periphery, but the, the centrality of what he said about himself. Uh, he is a, a very high moral teacher for whom truth is of critical value. He regards this, he spent a lot of time talking about truth. Uh, and uh, decrying hypocrisy and falsehood of one kind or another. Uh, and yet he himself is prepared to say that he can forgive sins, that he can put people in touch with God, that he is in fact God himself in human form. Uh, and the real question that one always comes back to is, how do you explain this enigma? Here's a man who is capable of the most extraordinary ethical teaching on the one hand, 
and makes these claims about himself and the other, and is said in the records to have done the most extraordinary things in terms of healings and the like, and finally to have died and risen from the dead as he said he would. Now, the real question is, is that true? And one has to look at the, the records and say, well, does it make sense? What's the most cogent explanation for the records and the evidence that we have? And I think the problem for most people is they're just not prepared to take the time to look at the records. Hmm. Partly because they think they're too busy, partly because they don't, they lack the incentive, but, but sometimes because they actually don't want to go where the evidence might lead. Uh, being a Christian has a cost to it. I, I talked earlier about being convinced in the mind, but at the end of the day, being a Christian is a question of the will. Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to hand over my life to him? Am I to, going to agree that God is God and he owns my life? And therefore my life should be lived by reference to him, with him at the centre, loving him with heart, soul, mind and strength, loving my neighbour as myself. There's a cost involved in that because we all naturally want to live for ourselves. Mm. <clears throat> and the essence of Christianity is saying, no longer am I going to live for myself, I'm going to live for Christ. And that's tough. And I know I've met a number of people in life who've come to agree about the truth of it, but have clearly said, no, I'm not going to follow Christ because that's simply not the way I want to go. Hmm. And, and that, I mean, that leads on to another question, which is, you know, you as a judge claim um, it is beyond reasonable doubt. You know, you've looked into the evidence, you've discovered this. Plenty of, you know, intelligent people, other judges even, uh, have have looked at things and, and, and would disagree. What do you make of that? Well, I think about the same proportion of judges in this country are Christians as in the population at large. Right. Be a pretty similar percentage, I would guess. Um, and the reasons they don't believe, I think, are exactly those I've just outlined. One, not actually looking at the evidence. Uh, not being prepared to do so, and secondly, not wanting to take uh, things to their logical conclusion on seeing the evidence, uh, for the reasons I've given. Of course, there are plenty of intelligent people. People are far more intelligent than I am who have been better judges than I have, I'm sure. Uh, but nonetheless, you've got to grapple with this on an objective basis. I always say to juries, put aside your prejudices, put aside everything the lawyers say, put aside everything the other people say. Just look at the evidence, examine the evidence for yourself. And, and I, I constantly encourage people to do that. There is nothing like looking at the Gospels and seeing now what does this record amount to? Thank you. And I mean, here's a uh, question from the, from the live chat. What, what, what difference does this evidence, um, you know, from, from 2000 years ago that you've weighed up and been convinced of, what, what difference does it make to your life now? Because it's true, as I indicated before, I have to live by it. You know, what, what Jesus is saying is that he is Lord and God, and he demands our allegiance, our loyalty, our service. So the difference it makes is that no longer do I seek to live for myself. I seek, however badly, uh, to live for Jesus, to live a life that's pleasing to him, that honours him, that's in relationship to him, with God right at the centre. I fail. All Christians fail. We're, we're none of us perfect. Um, 
the last line of my favorite film, which is Some Like It Hot, is nobody's perfect. Uh, and that's true. Uh, but, but the aim of one's life, the, the whole um, object of it is entirely different once you become a Christian. Uh, you are no longer your own. You recognize that you belong to Jesus. Uh, and so it's absolutely fundamental. And it gives meaning, it gives significance to life that without it uh, would, to my, my, my way of thinking, be entirely purposeless. When I was a teenager, I think that's what came across to me strongest of all. I read quite a lot of existentialist um, philosophy at the time, which always seemed to me to be the only alternative. Life is either completely random, completely meaningless, where nothing has any purpose or significance. There's no good at evil. There's no morality. There's no justice. Or there's design and there's purpose. And there's a God and a God who wants to make himself known. Uh, and the, the stark reality of that choice came across me to me. And I think it often does to teenagers who feel angst <laughs> perhaps uh -huh. more strongly because they're going through all sorts of physical changes and so on and so forth. But you see things quite clearly uh, at that point. Uh, and the reality is that nobody, but nobody really thinks that life is completely meaningless. Nobody can live that way. We uh -huh. all live as if justice matters. Hmm. Just, just look around you. Everywhere you look, look at the campaigns that are going on right now about racism. Hmm. Hmm. None of that makes any sense if there's no good, there's no evil, there's no justice, no injustice. Hmm. Hmm. It matters simply because we instinctively recognize, because we're made that way, that justice is important. Uh, and we're made like that because we're made in the image of God, a God of justice. Hmm. Thank you. So... I guess, you know, some would say, well, it sounds like you've, you know, really taken this seriously and, you know, you're, you're, you're living it. But, you know, does everyone need to do that? I mean, can I, you know, it sort of sounds like it's true for you, but is this necessarily something that everybody needs to take so seriously? Well, I, I'm interested by your phrase, it's true for you. It, it's no good going into a court and saying, well, it may be true for you. What we're actually interested in is objective truth in terms of a crime. Did he do it or didn't he? Right. Yep. It's no good saying, well, it's true for me. I think he did it. it. He either did or he didn't. And we need to ascertain that. And once you've ascertained it, then you've got to do something about it. Yep. And that's particularly important when you're examining fundamental truths about life and death and about God and, and meaning and significance and purpose and Jesus. Uh, you can't simply say, it's okay for you. Hmm. question is, is it really true? If it is, then it matters more than anything else. Hmm. If it's not true, then forget it. Thank you. So let, let, let's explore this, this issue of justice a bit more um, in terms of uh, you know, the idea of God being a God of justice. Um, here's another famous atheist, Stephen Fry, um, beloved comedian. Uh, he, he was interviewed a few years ago and, and made quite a startling statement um, about God. And uh, he was asked, what would he say to God if he appeared before him on the day of judgment? And he said, you know, he said words to these effects. He said, how dare you? Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world so, so full of injustice and pain? 
Um, it's, uh, it's not fair, it's not right, it's utterly, utterly evil. So to him, the idea that God might be there is abhorrent because he looks around him and says, well, there's, there's so much evil in the world and so much injustice that the idea that God is a God of justice to him is, is nonsense because all he looks around and sees injustice. What, do you, what, what would you say to that? Well, I think the, there are a number of different answers uh, to that. But, but first and foremost, the very fact that he thinks in terms of justice the very fact that individuals have this sense of justice needs to be explained. Uh, if, if everything is completely random, why do we have this sense of, of justice or and good and evil at all? Why is there a, a religious sense in us? One has to explain the way humans are made up. Uh, if everything is about evolutionary force, no design at all, then the strong shall live and the weak shall die. And uh, I had a biology teacher who used to think the right thing to do, he used to say it anyway, the right thing to do with the starving was to send them poison chocolate so that the fittest would survive. This is what evolution is about. But nobody can live like that. We all recognize that. Now, why do we recognize that that's, that can't be right? Why do we revolt against that? Because we're made in this particular way. Uh, and the biblical explanation, both for good and evil, is that we're made in the image of God, but that image has been marred by the way humans have pushed him out. That's what the Adam and Eve story is all about, about pushing God out, about deciding to live for yourself, deciding what you want instead of living in obedience to God. And the effect of that is not only a society ruined, but the world in which we live has been spoiled too, with all the evil that we see around about us, all the things that we see and think of as being destructive and wrong. And then you get to the point where you have God himself stepping into this mess. And this is the key. When you look at what Jesus said and did, he talks about himself as coming in to put things right. He talks about himself bearing the eve of the world on himself, taking responsibility on the cross for all the evil of the world. I often say, what is the greatest injustice you can think of ever that's been ever perpetrated? And, and the short answer I would like to give and always suggest is, well, actually, it's the cross. Mm. You can't think of a worse um, conviction. No proper charges, torture, fixed evidence, a judge who two or three times says the man's innocent but still convicts him, and an execution of an entirely innocent man. Everybody recognized. Someone they could say could have never done anything wrong. Uh, and yet, if the record is right, it's of more than a man, it's God himself. And so what mankind is doing here is trying to get rid of God, just as he always has. And, and the cross is both the ultimate injustice uh, and also the epitome of human evil, doing away with God. And yet that's the very means by which God himself takes responsibility for all the injustice of the world. He takes on himself the blame, the responsibility. So we've got God saying, you've made a real mess of it, but I'll take the responsibility for it myself, and I'll welcome you home if you're prepared to come. And that's a fantastic uh, central message of Christianity, which mm. I find him enormously comforting. I wouldn't want to face God without, uh, without knowing that. 
thank you. That, that, that's really a powerful way of putting it. So the, the, the point to the, to the injustice of what Jesus experiences, we'll come back to that in a moment. I guess something that some people would say is um, clearly there is a lot of evil in the world which is caused by human beings, but there's other types of evil and pain and misery caused by things like the coronavirus or uh, other things, uh, natural disasters and, 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 and things like that. What, 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 what can you say in the light of that? Because Stephen Fry might still be thinking, you know, well, what is God doing creating a world where these things can happen and there's so much pain? Well, again, we're back to this question of when God made man, did he make him as a robot or did he give him some choice? Uh, and we all know in that reality, we have choices to make and choices uh, have consequences. Uh, I'm always saying that to uh, uh, and people who once trying to get back on the right path after they've come out of prison. The choices you make will have consequences. You know that you're responsible. Uh, and, and, and what we find Jesus uh, and the, the biblical prophets telling us is that when people choose to go their own way, when mankind chose to reject God, then it impacted not just on their own lives, but it impacted on the world as a whole, that went out of kilter with God's basic purposes. Uh, and the result is that we have illness, we have sickness, we have death, we have plagues, we have famine, we have natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so it can be traced back to human choice, not your individual choice here and now, but choices that humanity has made over the, over the years. And I guess one can see that in, in, in rather uh, more simple terms when we look at the environment, hmm. distractions, uh, things that have happened to the environment, what happens to the weather and so on and so forth, we, we know now is a result of choices that people made some time back, hmm. very largely. It's, it's so, a small illustration. Yeah. So, you know, if, if human beings turning our backs on God is at the heart of the problem in the world, and, you know, you, and you've pointed us to the cross, which in one sense where we see some great injustice being done, and there's that sense that Christians talk about Jesus being judged in our place and taking the judgment we deserve, and there's a kind of swap at the cross. So we go free, even though we're guilty, and we, we, we go free because Jesus, who is innocent, is punished in our place. Um, if that sort of thing happened in a court that you were presiding over, wouldn't you say that was deeply unjust and unfair and not right, a miscarriage of justice? Well, it would be a, a miscarriage of justice if, uh, if you were guilty of a crime and uh, your brother, if you have one, turned up and said, well, I'll, I'll serve his period of imprisonment instead of him. The court wouldn't see that as just. There have, in fact, been one or two cases where uh, it's very unjual, but it has happened, where has ju a judge has offered to pay the fine on behalf of the individual. Hmm. There was a case I read about. It was a magistrate, in fact, and, and he thought in, that the law didn't make much sense, and the, the individual uh, was being quite unfairly dealt with. 
and so he actually paid the fine on behalf of. Didn't, the didn't that individual get into trouble? He got into trouble. Yeah, he did get into trouble for it. You're quite right. But but the difference here is that we haven't got God saying I'm going to punish him instead of him. We've got saying I'm going to take all the, all, all responsibility for all this. I mean, this is the most extraordinary act of mercy, isn't it? And justice is being done because God himself is satisfying his own character, a character that demands that things be put right, and he puts it right by his own suffering. So we have a suffering God who suffers in a way that most of us never can imagine in life, which saves us from the position that would otherwise obtain when we die, that we would simply be cast out from God altogether. So God the judge is, you know, he, he, he is part, he's not just subject to some external system, he is the judge who determines the, 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 the justice. That's where we get our system of justice from, is from the one who steps into the world to die on the cross. It all comes back to the character of God, doesn't it? Mm. Who God really is and what he's doing. Mm. And he gives and he gives and he gives and he forgives and he pardons and he gives a fresh chance. And mm. uh, the forbearance is astonishing. Mm. You know, we've got a God who steps into the world and he takes all this suffering on himself. Before we finish, I'd just like to put another question to you that's come through the, the chat. Um, uh, I think someone sort of pushing back a bit on the idea that, uh, you know, justice points us to a God of justice or the sense of justice that we have, um, you know, and the, the sense that racism is wrong points us to the fact that there is right and wrong and, and that that comes from, from God. I think you know, this person is suggesting, is, is, that, is it not possible that's just evolved in us, you know, separate from any... God who might have made us, is it possible that, that the sense of justice has just evolved as a necessary mechanism for communities of cooperating individuals to, to thrive together? Can evolution explain it? Why is, is the question I would ask. Uh, yes, of course, there's no doubt that societies work best when you have law and order and you have a system of justice. But when someone says, why should I? or why shouldn't I, as the case may be, you need a reason. Uh, and we always come back to th th this point that we instinctively recognize that things ought to happen in a particular way. Uh, and if you're going to impose a system of law and order and punishment, you need to be able to justify that. Uh, one of the things I often say when I talk about these things is I say, what's the what's the child's earliest complaint when they think they're hard done by? And the answer comes back, it's not fair, that's what they say. To which the parent, at least in my generation, always replied, life isn't fair. <laughs> and, and, and as the parent said that, the parent was trying to tell the child, look, this is the way life is, you're gonna to have to get used to it, there's a lot wrong with the world. But instinctively, Whilst saying it, the parent itself recognises life ought not to be like that. The child knows life ought not to be like that. The parent knows life ought not to be like that. And immediately you come down to the question, ought not to be like it? Why not? 
Mm-hmm. If this is if if, if evolution and uh, Darwinian uh, thinking is all there is, then why why shouldn't life be like that? Because we thrive better, someone might say. But but not not so. Uh, evolution works on the basis of the selfish gene of the the strongest, the survival of the fittest. Uh, I referred to. Uh, I went training once for the paratroops uh, years ago, and I recall seeing this picture in the gym of, of a, a squaddy who'd given his everything and was up to his neck in mud and was, his head was about to drop into the mud with full battle dress and rifle and everything else. And above it was the motto, the strong shall live and the weak shall die. And uh, it, the fact is we instinctively revolt against that because we know it can't be right. And the very fact we keep saying it can't be right, it ought not to be so, tells you something about our makeup. Yeah. It's practically a question of, yeah. of um, Darwinian e- e- evolution. So can, can, can evolution ex- and, uh, explain why we should be concerned for the weak, I guess, would be a, a question back, wouldn't it? Logical. There's, there's no logic for justice without purpose, without meaning, and without God. Mm. You could talk about it, it as a concept, but it, it's not a real concept anymore. Just as good and evil aren't real concepts anymore. They're just labels you put on something which is either beneficial for the majority of people in society or detrimental to the majority of people in society. Mm. They have no real meaning. Mm. And yet, that's not how we see it. Uh, And I always come back to this. You know, what's the most cogent explanation for the way people are? For the fact that we do think in these terms, that that we're not simply uh, creatures who, who think that the strong shall live and the weak shall die is the right way to go about life. Mm. And, and we you. justify it. We justify what we do. Mm. When you punish your children, mm. you do it on the basis they've got to know what's right and what's wrong. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Jeremy. And uh, I'm sorry we haven't got to all the questions in the in the chat, but we've we've been able to ask a couple of them and that's been really helpful. And uh, we, we're going to, I'm going to ask Jeremy to sort of finish by su- doing, a, do a bit, do a bit of judicial summing up, um, and, and in particular, help us just to see how should we respond to what we have heard about this evening. If 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 you're sceptical about everything I have said, uh, my res- my recommendation to you to be would be examine the evidence of the records, the records of Jesus. Take time out to do that. Uh, read a gospel for yourself or read it with a Christian friend, best of all. Go through it with them uh, and work out for yourself, does this make sense or not? Uh, and I'd suggest that when you do this, what you find is that it has the ring of truth. Not only is it evidence which uh, demands a verdict uh, on the one hand, but actually God speaks that Jesus said his words were words that gave life. And people have found that when they come to read what Jesus says. It has this extraordinary quality of getting to us right where we are. Uh, So I think um, that's what I would say to the skeptic. Uh, And what I would say to those of you who are are convinced Christians is that you do realize that nothing else really matters except the truth of this and that we should live by it. And however badly I've uh, failed in that uh, over the years, I would just encourage people to make this the center of your life. 
follow Jesus. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that's what we're called to do. Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's been great to be chatting with you. Um, just to say to people, we'll be doing this again in a week's time. And we've got uh, Dr. Andrew Satch talking to us about uh, God and science and COVID-19. So we'll be getting a bit into more of the, you know, the, the, the uh, what is sometimes seen as the conflict between faith and science and in particular, whether science is, is going to save us in the current situation that we're in with, with COVID-19. Can that, is science enough to deal with all the problems that we face in the world? Those would be the kinds of questions that we deal with, with uh, Dr. Andrew Satch, who is a church leader, but uh, also has a PhD in uh, neuroscience. Um, so he's going to be helping us with that. And do also join us on Sundays um, at 10.30 here on this page, the same live stream page at 10.30 in the morning. And also if you head to our website, you'll find details for our evening service at six o'clock in the evening, which is on Zoom and the details are on the website. And at the beginning of, well, at, right at the end of June, on Tuesday the 30th of June, for three Tuesday evenings, we're gonna run a little um, course called Christianity in a Nutshell which will be three Tuesday evenings, a chance to come onto Zoom for a bit of discussion of uh, some of the things we've been hearing over this series, these COVID conversations, to delve into a bit more detail, to ask more questions in person, to look at what the Bible says about who Jesus is, why he came, what it means to follow him, and uh, to uh, grapple with these things. As, as, as Jeremy's been saying, these things really matter. Um, these, uh, this, is, this is the big questions of life and death. And, in this season, if not in any other season, if in this season, as we are reminded of the fragility of life, surely this is the time to be looking into these big questions. So do join us for any of these things. Head to our website to find all the, the details on those. Uh, thank you, Jeremy, once again, and all the best to everyone, and good night.